Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Look at a story uh, in scripture of a group of men who traveled a very long distance to come and behold Jesus. Um, that's right. We're going to be looking at the story of the, the wise men, uh, wise men from the east or the, the magi as they're referred to in the NIV. We've all seen the nativity scenes, right, of uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and the shepherds and the three wise men. But there's a little bit of a problem with that theme or that, that image we have in our mind because it's not um, 100% uh, a clear picture of what really of the, of the history because uh, first off, we don't know it was three wise men. We just assume that through church tradition because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There, there may very well and probably were more than three wise men. Uh, and they also weren't there on the night of Jesus' birth. They came sometime in the months following. And when we look at the history and how it all played out, we can see that quite clearly. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. Um, Matthew, did you know, is the only gospel writer who even references this story of the wise men, which I find very interesting. Um, there's something about this story that Matthew said, we've got to include this in, 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 the, in the, the, the scriptures. So Matthew 2, we'll put them up, put the uh, passages up on the screen. I'll be reading from the ESV. Feel free to follow along in your own Bible, all of you who are the good Christians who brought your Bible today. Come on, I see that Bible, Lorraine, well done. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. No condemnation for those of you who didn't bring your Bible, by the way. It's all good. <laughs> now, after Jesus was born, after Jesus was born, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's an interesting phrase. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he quotes Micah. Skip down to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, 
and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. The story goes on and continues with Joseph then receiving another dream uh, when he was in Egypt saying it's now, Lord saying it's now safe to return to Israel. And then uh, he gets another dream uh, that leads him to go back to Nazareth and settle there with his family, which was actually the fulfillment of another prophecy that Jesus would be known as a Nazarene. Lots of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in this passage of Scripture. Uh, I want to talk today about beholding King Jesus. Beholding King Jesus. Father, we love your presence and thank you for how you've been with us in our worship. But Lord, I thank you that we can encounter you so powerfully in the word and Lord, we, there's something in this story for us. Matthew included it. There's things that we need to see and understand that um, we need you to show us. Lord, would you reveal your kingship, your authority? Can we just humble ourselves before him and invite him to convict our hearts? He loves us. He's gentle. But invite him, invite him to convict our hearts of any area where we have excluded him, at least his kingship, from our lives. Father, we, we want to give you everything. Lord, as Lorraine was praying earlier, holding nothing back, all of it belonging to you. Well, may this word produce that in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most uh, obvious contrasts in this passage of scripture that we just read is the response of the wise men to this revelation of a new king and the response of Herod and his realization of a new king. The, the wise men, they wanted to come and find him and worship him, and Herod wanted to kill him, wanted to destroy him. And what this really highlights, this story, I think the big picture of it is that the, the, the message, the word of the kingship of Jesus touches the hearts of people at a very, very deep level. That word of Jesus, of his kingship and his authority, his absolute and eternal reign, uh, it provokes in us a very, very extreme response. We're either provoked to worship or we're, we're provoked to, to whatever we can to do whatever we can to try to erase from our mind and from our thinking the thoughts of him having the right to rule in our lives. In many ways, it depends upon the condition of our hearts. And you can probably see, you know, like I can in my own life, these two extremes in operation and at work. There was a very long period of my life from being a small child to 21 years, eight, 21 years old when uh, I was quite happy to know Jesus 
as my healer, as my savior, as a provider, uh, as someone who would help my life. But I was not really keen to understand him as king or as Lord because acknowledging that would require a different response from me. If you ask me when I was 21 years old, if I, sorry, when I was 20 years old, if I believed in Jesus and believed in the Bible, I would have said yes while passing you a joint. Because I actually did that once. I was sitting with, in a circle with my friends, and I'm like, you know, we're, somehow the conversation of the Bible came up. And I'm defending the Bible while passing a joint to my friend. I'm saying that I believe, yes, Jesus is real. I believe the Bible is true. But I'm living in a way that in no way reflected the reality of his lordship and his kingship in my life. But about a year later, in this moment of complete brokenness and desperation, I, my eyes were open to the reality of Jesus' rule. And something happened that was very powerful when I acknowledged his reign, his right to rule in my life. Uh, something began to shift and change inside of me. I, 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 it was like I was made new from the inside out. My, my life began to change. And, and it's important for under, us to understand that our revelation of who Jesus is has a very significant bearing in how we relate to God and even our capacity to have a right relationship with God. This is why Jesus would often ask people, remember the stories of him asking, you know, who do, his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that, well, some say uh, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. In other words, a prophet, a teacher. And then he would push the question on them and he'd say, but who do you say that I am? Because how they answered that question had a significant impact upon what their relationship with him would be like. I, and I, I was trying to make this point once. I've shared the story of, of meeting with these football players in Middle Tennessee. And, and I'm trying to talk to them about how important it is to understand rightly who Jesus is. And I thought I would do this little experiment. Let's see how this turns out. So I had them pull out a sheet of paper. Write on this piece of paper, number one, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? Number two, on a scale of one to ten, rate your level of commitment to this person, Jesus. And I start reading back through them. And a lot of people said, son of God, savior, son of God, you know. He, he, almost everybody said that. There was one guy who says he's Lord out of that whole group. And then I start reading back through what they said about their level of commitment. One being, I uh, don't really care anything about Jesus. Ten, I'm all in. He's the most important person in my life. And everybody was like a three, four, five, six, except for one person who was a 10. He was all in. And I said to him, and I said, isn't it interesting that the only person who's all in with Jesus, 10 out of 10, was the only one who also said that Jesus is Lord. How we define who he is has such a significant impact to how much of our heart we are willing to give over to him. If he's just our savior, if he's just our provider, if he's just a friend, then that's all about what we can receive from him. It's all about us. But if he's Lord, if he is king, then that demands a response from us. And interestingly, a response that cuts against something inside of us. But once I began to be behold him as, as king, I could not help but begin to reorient my whole life around him. My language changes. The next day I'm at work, after getting right with God, I was born again, alone in my bedroom. The next day I'm at work, I'm like, 
man, I'm, I haven't been swearing at all today. Like, but something's different. I'm really changed. My, my language is different. I, I stopped uh, getting high every day. I stopped trying to escape. There was something in my, that connection with acknowledging his lordship. He begins pouring into me something that, that is the real source of, of what I, I need. My, people, my feelings towards other people changed. My attitude towards those in authority started to change. I started returning things that I had stolen. I had this video, this VHS tape that I just never bothered to take back. I rented it. It's mine now. And I got convicted. I had it for like a year. This is my favorite movie, Dazed and Confused. I watch this movie almost every day. Don't see the movie, but I did. And uh, it, I so identified in that previous season of my life with this movie. But I took the VHS back, and I gave it back to him. I said, sorry, it's a little bit late. Because <laughs> I was, God was moving. I was being convicted of my sin. I was wanting to reorient my life to him, I started relating to women differently. I was throwing away things that were provoking lust. I was getting rid of all the old music I was listening to because it was such an idol before and taking me back into the feelings that I had before. My vision for my future started to change because if he's my king, then everything gets submitted to him. I take my orders my, for, for even my future, my destiny, my calling. It all comes from him. And so this revelation of and, and beholding the kingship of Jesus began to change my entire life. Everything starts to shift, and all for the better, I might add. But I had other friends who were responding more like Herod, because I'm sharing Jesus with them. Here's what God's done in my life, and you could just see it. There was something that they hated about that message. It cut across everything that they held dear, which was their right their sense of a right to remain the king of their kingdom. It's, it's threatened their own sense of a, a right to rule their own life. But one of the most profound truths that we can see in this passage of Scripture is that God is actively drawing people, even the most unsuspecting people, to worship Jesus as the king. He's drawing, he's actively at work drawing people. We got to understand what's going on in this story because do you know the wise men didn't just stumble upon Jesus? I was thinking about this and I was like, well, I got to ask some questions of this text, man. Who, who are these people? Have you ever wondered, who are the wise men? There's the, the, where did they come from? How did they even know to be looking for a star? How did they see a star and know we need to travel west? How did they show up? What the heck is this? They're, we saw his star. And so I start exploring and I'm praying through this and thinking through, his, through this. And, and we know from, uh, from Matthew's history, as, as he shares, they came from the east. And the people in that day, when they would have read Matthew's, uh, his gospel, they would have known that the east refers to this area that is now known as modern-day Iran and Iraq. At the time, it was called the Parthian Empire. But what's interesting is before it was the Parthian Empire, you might recognize these. These might kind of ring some biblical bells for you. Uh, before it was the Parthian Empire, it was the Persian Empire. And before it was the Persian Empire, it was the Babylonian Empire. 
And all of this is known as this area that has for a long time before that known as Mesopotamia. Right? It was this area along the Euphrates River, not far from where the original Garden of Eden was. I know this probably sounds like a boring geography class, but it is going somewhere. Um, those nations should sound familiar to you, especially if you have ever read the book of Daniel. And in that book, we see in the book of Daniel references to the Magi. Like 600 years before this, we see at work in this same region, in the same area, magicians, enchanters, the Magi, these, uh, these wise men that were called in to be counselors to kings. They were looked at as those who had secret knowledge and answers, and they were a part of the king's court. He, they would consult national leaders, the, the king. And so you might remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, call all of the wise men. I've had a dream. And they're like, come on, we got this. We'll interpret the dream. And he says, no, no, no. I'm not going to just tell you the dream and let you interpret it. You are going to tell me the dream that I had. And then you're going to interpret it. And they're like, what are you talking about? How is there any wise man on the planet that could actually do what you're asking us to do? And he said, all right, well, you're obviously not very wise. So I'm going to kill you all. You're done. I've had enough of you. And so Daniel was actually one of these wise men. Isn't that interesting? Daniel had become a wise man, known as someone who, because of his close relationship with God, had access to supernatural wisdom and insight and knowledge and understanding. And so Daniel comes and says, oh, I got this. Bring me to the king. And so he goes and he, he has a word of knowledge and he tells the king the dream that he's had, details, and then he interprets for him what the dream is. And King Neb is, has this encounter with God. He falls down on his face before Daniel and says, now I know that your God is the one true God. And so what's crazy is you see this extreme favor that comes to Daniel out of this word of knowledge and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar makes him the second in command in the entire nation. He is leading all of the wise men, and he becomes known as the greatest wise man of his day. So much so that when the uh, Babylon, Babylonian Empire gets taken over by the Persian Empire because we see this shift and change in the book of Daniel from uh, King Nebuchadnezzar to uh, these other Persian kings. Daniel still stays second in command over, multi, over two kingdoms and over multiple kings, which is unheard of. It's crazy favor. And so Daniel becomes known as this this extremely respected wise man, extreme favor, extreme influence. And so Daniel begins to leave this multi-generational mark upon the culture of Persia, which had become this Parthian empire. It helps us to understand why these wise men knew anything at all about this coming Messiah. Do you know why? Because Daniel spoke of him. 
Daniel prophesied of him. 600 years later, Daniel is still known as the greatest wise man who has ever lived, and they are still looking for this promised Messiah that they would have known about from Daniel. They probably had Daniel's writings, and we know in Daniel 7, he prophesies of this king. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, I saw this night visions. Behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that who? All peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not ever be destroyed. The, The wise men had inherited this revelation of a coming Messiah. A king who would not be just the king of an empire, but the king of the entire planet. The king of the entire world. And so by the time of Jesus, you've got this religion that the wise men had called Zoroastrianism, which was sort of this mixture. They believed in one true God. So it was kind of like the what they inherited in a sense from Daniel and his his their morals were similar to the law of God. Uh, They believed in this one true God uh, who was all powerful, but they mixed it with their their kind of Persian astrology. And so they were looking to the stars. They were were looking for insight about this God to the stars. But do you know what's interesting? Why why did they look for a star? And I started digging a little deeper. And you know what I found out? I found out that there was uh, another wise man, wise man, that goes back about 1,200 years, who gives one of the first biblical prophecies of the coming Messiah, and his name was Balaam. This is found in Numbers 24. So Balaam is like the wise man, one of the original wise men from this same area, the same people group that became this Parthian empire. They would have inherited. He was like this, uh, this diviner, like he, he, was, he, he was looked at as someone who was kind of a priest of, of this the, the early days of this religion that they had in this area, looking to the stars. And he prophesies this word from God, Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It'll crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Theologians look to this as one of the first prophetic promises of the Messiah. And so how did they know about Balaam's prophecy? Who knows? Maybe they got it from, maybe it was passed down from the generations of wise men of this star. <clears throat> maybe it came to them from Daniel, and maybe Daniel's like, oh, we got this prophecy about a star because they're into astrology. Let me teach you, show you about this. But whatever it was, they are always, every year, constantly, generation after generation, these wise men are looking to the west, towards Israel, for a star. And then this star arises. God is orchestrating thousands of years of revelation east of Israel to fulfill his eternal purpose to reach the Gentile nations. God is using a star to guide astrologists to the worship of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find that amazing. God is actively using whatever means necessary to draw people 
into the worship of King Jesus. And so what can we learn about this from our own lives? Well, no matter how dark we think our past is, no matter how unworthy we think we are, no matter what our life was wrapped up in before, God's desire is that we would know him deeply, that we have a revelation of the authority, the kingship of Jesus, and that we would come and worship him. It also speaks of the great links that the, these wise men went to. And they think we're talking about hungry, hungry to know the true God, hungry to worship this king, always looking to the west. When is the star going to arise? And when it does, they load up their camels and they travel about a thousand kilometers. It would have taken them six weeks or more to journey all the way to Jerusalem, seeing the star. They're coming to worship. Talking about spiritual hunger, man, a longing to come and see and worship this king. We can see such a contrast with the people in the nation of Israel and Jerusalem who are completely apathetic. Imagine them showing up like, man, the king is, the star of the king is risen. And everybody's in Jerusalem just going out about their business. And everybody's like, what are you talking about, king? We don't know anything about a king. Isn't it amazing that God brings these wise men with their spiritual hunger from a pagan nation who are mixed up in astrology to put to shame all the Jewish people and just call out their apathy and call out their religion. You got this spiritual hunger, this longing to come and see this king. It speaks of how God is actively drawing people to him. It speaks of how he's already revealing himself to our friends and to our family who are far from him. I went to our, we have this little jujitsu social every, every time we do a grading, and I went there last night, and uh, we're just about to leave, and I walk over, I'm like, Nathan, we need to, we need to get home. And uh, two other people had come and sit down next to Nathan and one of the other guys that uh, trains at the gym, and I'm like, oh, where did you guys come from? These are like two Christians who just rocked into this pub and sat down and started sharing the gospel with Nathan and this other guy. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. That's a, you know, so we're talking, and, and so it opened up this whole conversation. And, and in this conversation, this guy that I roll with all the time in the gym, he starts talking about how, I, didn't, I knew none of this. He starts talking about how his brother just recently got right with God. And how his brother has been talking to him about Jesus and talking about his faith. This guy's like a PhD psychologist at University of WA. And just a really sweet guy. But I had no idea this was going on in, in behind the scenes. He's like, yeah, I was just about, my brother suggested I read uh, Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis. I was, I was like, I got a better one for you. Read Reason for, for God by Tim Keller. He's like, he's writing it down, you know. And so, so God is like, I was in awe. I was like, God is revealing himself to this person, bringing two people up off the street to orchestrate a situation where I can then next week follow up with my friend Lewis and say, hey, have you started reading Tim Keller yet? Have you started reading the Bible? How's your journey uh, towards faith going? We had some great conversations in that moment, didn't we, Nathan? It was, just a, it was just this amazing, just kind of divinely orchestrated moment. God is drawing people. He's revealing himself. He's actively involved in helping people to come to a place of faith in Jesus. There's another truth this passage reveals to us. We all have to resist the temptation 
to remain our own king. And we see this um, from the example of Herod. And I'm going to steal this phrase from Tim Keller. He says, there's a, there's a little King Herod in all of us. See, we're all born with this desire for self-worship. We see it when we place two toddlers in a sandbox. You don't have to teach them to be stingy, do you? It's like, that's mine. No, that's mine. That's mine. You know, it's like, it might be friendly for a couple of moments, but man, it's going to go somewhere dark before too long. Because there is a little King Herod on the inside that wants to be the king of his or her own kingdom. And so you've got these wise men who come into King Herod's palace. I mean, think about it. Coming into a palace and say, hey, where's the king? Oh, no, no, not you, the other king. Your king. The king of all kings. Think about how threatening that question would be. And that's why uh, the passage Matthew says that King Herod was troubled. <laughs> Probably an understatement there. Very threatening question. Well, we know from history that Herod was an extremely violent man. He had actually already uh, killed his second wife. He killed his three sons and his father-in-law because... He was trying to secure his throne. He was insecure. He was paranoid. He was hungry for power. And he's willing to murder even his own sons to secure his kingdom. And so we know from the story that we just read, he was so threatened by this visit from the wise men that he's consulting with the religious teachers to try to find out where is this king supposed to be born? Think about it. I am consulting a, a prophecy. I'm so, I'm so determined to hold on to my rule. I, think about the arrogance to say that all I need to know is the prophecy from God, and I will make sure it doesn't come to pass. He wants to find out where is this kid going to be born? Where is he now so that I can take him out? And so he was extremely angry when he was tricked by the wise men who didn't return because of the dream that they had. And so he works out that, okay, based on when the wise men say that Jesus was born, let's go back even farther, let's just be safe. He, he puts to death all the, all the boys under two years old in the city and in the region. We know that that was at least 20 to 30, based on the population, it would be about 20 to 30 Little boys, baby boys, ripped from their families, probably brutally murdered in front of them. This is the extent to which King Herod would go to maintain his power. It's, it's of course, easy to, for us to throw stones at Herod because he is the paragon of evil. He's the Hitler of his day, right? Everybody's, you know, like when you, you ask somebody, are you, are you a pretty good person? Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I've never murdered anyone. You know, I'm not Hitler. Like, that's our standard, right? Like, oh, man, you are a holy person. You've never murdered anyone. You are the paragon of righteousness and holiness. But see, the bigger picture of Scripture tells us that uh, it's not just some of the people in the world that are evil. Scripture tells us 
that we are all born with this proclivity towards evil. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in every heart, every human heart, there is either a little King Herod or there is the remnant of a little King Herod that has to be sanctified. There is this part of us, something that wants to rule, something that has to be put to death and crucified with Christ initially through repentance and through this ongoing process of deeper and deeper levels of repentance as God leads us on this journey. This, is, this little King Herod is the primary reason why we are insecure. It's why we're jealous. It's why we compare ourselves to others. It's why we can sometimes go to a really dark place comparing ourselves to others on social media. It's at the root of our pride, our selfish ambition. This is the problem. This is the problem in the world. This is what's created all the, the, the chaos. It's the little King Herod that's at work in every human heart. So Paul says in Romans 1 that we all know this to be true. We all know that God has a right to rule in our hearts, but we suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. I can remember this season in my life when little King Herod had full expression and I was, I was eight, 17, 18 years old. I was going to, uh, I went to a Guns N' Roses concert. And right outside the Guns N' Roses concert, I was a big fan in high school, right out, this was the Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 tour, all right, in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm, I'm rocking up to the, the concert, you know, I'm excited. And then there's a street preacher on the side of the road preaching, and something came up, this fear, this, and I'm, this, this realization of the reality of who Jesus is, and I'm trying to shove it back down, and I'm like hiding my face. I'm walking to the other side of the street. I do not want, what if one of these people went to the church that I went to when I was a kid, and they want to call me out and talk to me about Jesus? I was suppressing the truth. I knew what they were saying was true, but I was suppressing it in my unrighteousness. Paul says this in Romans 3. He says, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And this is where we run into a little bit of a personal offense because we would all say, well, yeah, I want God in my life. And, and we, yeah, you know, surely there's like millions of, you know, like people out there who are sincere, who really they, they're searching, they're seeking after God. I mean, after all, the wise men search for Jesus. And on the surface, this would seem to be true, except that once we dig a little bit deeper and we think about this more deeply, we find out what people are really searching for. What most people are actually seeking is not God, but the gifts that God gives, right? So most people are seeking relief from pain. Now, God uses that, but let's not mistake that for a spiritual hunger and a desire for God. What we want we have a hunger to just get free from whatever is plaguing and ailing us. We see this uh, at work when um, we, you know, like people walk away from Jesus. They walk away from God. They walk away from church, whatever. And they say something like, oh, well, my prayers weren't being answered. Well, okay, so you didn't really want God. You just wanted the answer to your prayers. You wonder what God could, could give you. They weren't actually seeking God. But there's this... 
other dilemma because not only do we tend to seek after the gift and not the giver of the gift, but uh, many people may say that they're seeking God, but what they're actually doing is seeking a God of their own making, right? And what Paul is essentially telling us here that some people may seek the God that they create, but no one is actually in and of themselves seeking the God as he reveals himself in Scripture. It's like if I go out to Curtin University and I'm like, do you believe in God? I'll have a lot of people say, yeah, I believe in God. But then when I ask them, well, tell me about this God. Is he holy? Is he the God who will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished? Is he the one that uh, says that you must repent and turn from your sin and trust in Christ uh, to be say, oh, no, 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 I don't believe in that God. (laughs) Happy to believe in a God, but just not that God. And so what we learn is that our spiritual hunger and our desire for God is actually not something that originates within us. It is something that comes on the other side of God flipping this switch in our heart, awakening us, causing us to be born again and being supernaturally changed to want to seek him. And so this is why Paul says in Romans 8, for all who are led by the spirit of God, are sons of God. We've got to first be made a son of God, and then we're filled with His Spirit, and then we, we receive this power to be led by Him. It's like even our, our desire for Him is a gift of His grace to us. And so what we learn from that is that we can't seek ourselves to God, but what we can do is we can seek in response to the spiritual hunger that he gives us, and even our own journey of getting free from sin is not something we can do. Like, you know, you, know, you ever have these old habits, you're like, why can't I get free from this? Why does this keep coming back up in my life and in my heart? It's because it is only by his grace. It's the more we behold him as king, the more we see him, the more we worship him, the more we just receive his love and, and let his grace wash over us, the more he just starts to change and transform our lives. So our sanctification, our freedom from sin is the result of just responding to the love that he fills us with. Just out of our gratitude, just wanting to, Jesus, what, I'm broken. I can't change myself. I see this thing over and over coming up in my life. Change me. Help me, God. I just, I'm beholding you as king. I need you to change me. One final truth we can see in this passage, and I think we'll worship him a little bit more. Jesus is not the king that most people expect. Jesus doesn't come in Matthew's story with a whole lot of fanfare or excitement. All he gets is some traveling wise men from a pagan nation and some shepherds who had a revelation, who had, a, had this encounter with angels. The angels, they didn't go to Jerusalem to declare anything. They went to some very unrespected people on the backside of a hill somewhere looking after sheep. The wise men, they, came, they come from this far away place to the largest city in Israel expecting that 
all of these people surely will have seen the star, and this is their own king. This is he's the king of the Jews. Surely the Jews will be full of excitement and and and, and it'll be this huge thing and nothing. Jesus' birth was easy to miss. He wasn't born in a palace surrounded by opulence. He was born in a stable surrounded by farm animals. When the wise men found him in a home in Bethlehem, there was no crown on his head. He was just a baby. The the weakest, most powerless form of humanity, completely dependent. Yet they worship him. As Jesus grew up, he didn't grow up in the fanciest of places. He grew up in a town called Nazareth, which was apparently such a backwoods, podunk town in Israel that when Philip is telling Nathaniel about Jesus of Nazareth, he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is there anything? What are you talking about? Nazareth. It wasn't the place that royalty would grow up. When Jesus comes up in ministry, he doesn't like call the most powerful and insignificant people in the culture. He doesn't call the religious leaders primarily to be his followers. Who does he call? He calls just some fishermen and some uneducated men, even a tax collector that was hated by, by many. Even his closest disciples struggled to understand the way of the kingdom because they're like, all right, Jesus, let's do this. Let's call down fire on our enemies. Let's just start a war with Rome and let's put you on the throne. Let's make you the king. We will die for you. Jesus says, no, that's not the way. At the prime of Jesus' life, he doesn't take a seat on a throne. He goes to hang on a cross as a substitution, a sacrifice for your sin, for the little King Herod that's at, that, that would be at work in all of humanity For everyone who would be born in the future, he absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of all humanity. He became sin that we might become righteous. He would destroy the authority and the power of Satan in that one act, rendering him and every demonic power powerless from that point forward for all who would trust in this Jesus and the authority of his name and his kingship. He did rise from the dead and he did take a seat on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father. But then he said, all right, boys, it's time to go and make disciples and extend the kingdom. And this is something that is going to happen over a very long period of time. Now, he didn't really make this too clear to them at the time, I don't think. But it's something that would grow very slowly. It would require the multiplication of billions of disciples. It would happen in secret. Like Jesus said, like leaven in dough. Over dozens of generations, my kingdom will grow and expand quietly. Jesus was not the king that we might expect. His kingdom rarely comes spectacularly. It can be easy to miss. But see, all of this, what do we learn from this? Jesus isn't the king that we expect him to be. Okay, well, what does that speak of? Well, it speaks of the power of weakness, of humility, 
and of vulnerability that Jesus modeled with his life. And so therefore, it speaks of how essential our weakness, our vulnerability, and our humility is. Jesus was once once questioned why he spends so much time with dirty, sinful people. And what did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come. This is the New Living Translation. He said, I didn't come to call those who think they are, are righteous. I came to call those who know they are sinners. I came to call the humble, the vulnerable, the ones that know that they are broken, the ones who know that they are in need of help. And so the primary thing that will keep us from beholding King Jesus is pride. It is that little King Herod. We must turn to Jesus in brokenness, and it's in our brokenness that we keep growing closer and closer to him. See, we all go through challenges and difficulties in our life, right? Anybody go through anything difficult? Any battles? I mean, we see so many passages of Scripture that say, count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. It's so hard in the moment, is it not? Be like, this is fantastic. This is exciting. I'm loving this. But what the, the lesson of Scripture is, is that there's something about the brokenness and the desperation that is produced through the difficulties and challenges and trials of life. And everybody goes through difficulty. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Everybody's going to go through challenging things. But not everyone allows those challenging things to provoke a brokenness in us that brings us, positions us to be closer to Jesus, to behold him as king. We see this playing out in our lives. It affects how rapidly we grow spiritually. Liz and I caught up with a couple recently that were struggling in their marriage, and they said, we need some help. Will you come and sit down and talk to us and help us? And we did. We, we sat down. We had a chat, and it was like Holy Spirit wisdom falls in the moment. Didn't, you know, things were said that weren't planned to be said, and God ministers deeply to this couple's heart. And I left there, and I, was th- and, I, and I said to Liv's, I said, isn't it amazing that there'd be dozens of people that we know that are struggling and battling in their marriage? But the humility of this couple to pick up the phone and just say, hey, we need help. We don't want to live in this. Can you come and help us and sit with us and counsel us? Brought this crazy breakthrough in their life that's breaking things off and leading them out of generational curse into greater levels of generational blessing, breaking dysfunction off of family line, brokenness, humility, the the weakness, just embracing the weakness. In our weakness, we are made strong. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead, 
and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.